0: Welcome to Podagogy, a Highlander Academy podcast about what we do and why we do it. I'm Christy Wright. I'm the assistant head of school, and I'm sitting here with our head of school, Mr. Duncan. Hello. And our upper school department head, Mr. Gant. Hello. How was your summer? We're going to talk about our summer reading.
1: It was great. I'm, I've been looking forward to uh, an opportunity to talk about this book for a while now.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited about this book. I'm glad. I, I can't remember who stumbled upon it, but I'm, I'm glad we found it.
1: That was me. I stumbled upon it. <laughs>
0: all right. I, I'm going to call an audible. I have, got a
1: free one. They sent me a free one and I read it and was like, buy all of them. They got you. They got me. Well, Their marketing worked.
0: Mar- good marketing. Yeah. So here, here I'm going to throw this out. Why don't you share what else you've been reading this summer?
2: Uh, I've been doing Lord of the Rings again.
0: All right. You, you know, can't go wrong there.
1: I've been listening to Lord of the Rings on audiobook and then uh, reading some, uh, mostly some history books about... Byzantium and the Eastern Roman Empire. It's been really interesting.
0: Great. we can look forward to hearing all about it this year.
1: So you you spend your summer reading
2: books about a subject which is literally a synonym for something that's confusing and hard to understand.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. okay. Those yeah. are my criteria for it's what a books I, I choose. Book. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm going to plug my new favorite author, P.G. Wodehouse. I read uh, first about what I hope is many books from him called "Right Ho, Jeeves." which I've enjoyed. I've never read them. It's not not in the curriculum. Okay. (laughs) I still highly recommend it. And then I am also reading Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. I'm moving a little more slowly through that one because it's an epic poem. So we've all read Classical Me, Classical V* by Rebecca Merkel. Yes. Squander Not thine Education is a subtitle here.
1: It's a book written by a former classical uh, Christian student to classical Christian school students. Um, Kind of her walking through um, the education she received and the temptation to squander it and and wanting to know why we do all this stuff. And this is... Her using the giftings and the tools uh, that she was uh, she acquired while she was in a classical school and turning it around and, and arguing why classical Christian school students shouldn't squander these things because they're good things to, to have.
0: Absolutely. And I, I just want to be clear that I don't think our students really need this message because I know they are all sold on every single thing we do from day one. Yes. In fact, the older they get, they are even more sold on what we are doing with them.
1: They're probably all they they they're probably all so excited that that we're what five six weeks into school now. They, right. They probably were just chomping at the bit over summer to get back.
0: They have probably written their own version of this book over the summer as a response to the overwhelming love that they have for the program. <laughs> Right. Is that enough tongue and cheek? They're
1: probably all rolling their <laughs> eyes at all of these comments
0: right I now. Know. I hope they are because if they are rolling their eyes, it means they're listening. That's right. And I do hope our students listen. Parents, if you're if you're listening, uh, please turn this episode on uh, to your students. Uh, bribe them with I don't know what do you bribe teenagers with?
1: Money, Not gas money, thing.
0: gas money. There you go. What's that?
2: I said books. I don't think that's
0: the right answer. No, books. More books to their library. Yeah. Leather-bound books. Bribe yeah. them with leather-bound books. All right. So let's just let's just talk about the structure of this uh, book for a second. So we have uh, Mrs. Merkel here, and she's written how many pages is this thing? It's,
2: it's like ninety something. 100
0: Right. Barely a hundred sure. pages. Um, you could sit down in a couple hours and read through it. It's it's very accessible. Um, I think some really fun graphics in here. I think this
2: was written to sort of an eighth grade level, um, kind of with a middle school age student in mind, because that's when they're starting to ask these questions. Right. And we we have that same experience here. They start to ask, what's the point of this? Why are we having to learn this? They see that their peers in other educational backgrounds are not doing some of the same things they're doing. But even in students in progressive education environments ask a lot of the same kinds of questions. Yeah, I was about to
1: say, I mean, it's, it's just natural for the age. I mean, I remember being in algebra one class at a, at a, you know, government school and and going, I am never, I promise I'm never going to use math the moment I graduate ever again. I'm only going to read and write and I'm never going to do math again. And of course, that was silly for me to think um, because I do math a lot in this job. But um, that's just a natural question for us to ask. Why do we have to learn this stuff? It's not practical. We're never going to use it again. Right. And I'm sure our students think that even maybe more so than some of their peers uh, because they're, you know, learning Latin. And, we, and we've and we discussed lots of these things in some of our other episodes.
0: Yeah, so. absolutely. So yeah, you can get a more thorough breakdown of, of some of these questions in other episodes and we encourage you to go and check those out. So let's just look at what she covers here in, in the table of contents. She's going to cover not every single aspect of classical Christian education, but maybe some of the ones that really bug students the most. Sure. And so she's going to look at, um, you know, first of all, what is what is it that we're trying to do here? What's the big picture? And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But she looks at Latin she has a chapter on Latin, on literature, logic, rhetoric, uh, worldview analysis. That's a huge part of what we're doing here. And so, she addresses like, why are we picking everything apart? Right. Right? What's the point? Yeah. Um, and then she talks about math and history. So, that's a pretty good list. But again, she's dealing uh, with these in you know, 10 pages or less um, in a really, really accessible, fun way. I, I thought she was funny. Yeah, she. Other is. students do. Yeah, she's pretty witty. Yeah. So let's let's look at a few a few things here in the book. We don't want to we we don't want to break it all down and go into it. We'll do that with our students right. uh, as we go throughout the year and a retreat. But I have a few good quotes that I thought we could have a good look at. Um, let's let's start at page eleven, and right in the middle of the page, she says, "The truth is, real life doesn't begin in college. You're deep in it already." And I thought a lot about the quote, I I can't remember who to attribute this to, but the boy is the master of the man. And that was, I think it was. Oh, that was in my P.G. Woodhouse book I read this summer. And so I've been thinking a lot about that—the um, idea that that the the seeds are already planted and are already growing. The boy is the master of the man, or the girl is the master of the young woman. So let's just talk about this for our students. Uh, real life doesn't begin in college. Sure. Definitely, definitely see that in our, in our students sometimes. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah, I think there's kind of two two facets to that. For one thing, you're already being formed, uh, you know, as soon as you're born, really, and. And parents bear that do bear the bulk of that responsibility, and then um, and that doesn't really ever change. But at a certain point, educators become an input to that, and so that's where our students are. And um, and also the other side of the coin is that the the belief that college is is like the real world is is a bit mistaken because college is just really it's not quite the real it's world, very, um, very
0: unlike the real world. Yeah, world. yeah um, it's
2: yeah. Uh, there's a lot of facets of college that are just not. Um, they're not the way life is going to be once you leave that place, and so um, to to enter college thinking now I've I've arrived I've made it into the real world is kind of a, is kind of a mistake if you haven't been taking life seriously up to this point um, and not too seriously but if you if you've not been trying um, college is not going to make you. Into something that you've never been, um, yeah. uh, and uh, and it, but if you arrive and you're and you're sort of a formless glob of a soul, then college can shape you. So uh, we'd like to see. People who have been formed by their parents' values, by their churches' input, yes. and by the kind of education that's provided by a Christian school and a classical school. Furthermore,
1: yeah, to know to know who you are, uh, even as a young person, is so important. And I think that our students, not just our students, but but teenagers, just in general, I know I thought this way that I am just in this limbo waiting stage until I can begin life, and the decisions and the choices and the opportunities that you have um, as a, as a young person. Living in your parents' household will very, very specifically affect your life later on. And and what you do with the opportunity set before you uh, will impact um, real life beyond college, will impact the way that you deal with a spouse, the way that you deal with your children, the way that you deal with coworkers, and the way you speak to them and and react uh, to them. And so this is not a time to, as as Rebecca says, squander things, right. um, not just your education, but just your formation, right. right? This is not a time to squander that. This is a time to um, prepare for battle.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And enjoy, enjoy some of the unique aspects of, of being in the stage of life you are in right now. Mm-hmm. I was telling a young woman who's about to, she just got married and is about to move away. And you could argue that she's about to start her real life, right? And mm-hmm. I said, just spend as much time in your parents' home. She has a big Family and a close family. I said, spend while they're right down the road. Spend as much time there. And she was already like, yeah, I'm, I'm really missing home. You know, super excited to be newly married. A great adventure for them. Um, but you don't. It's a cliche, but you don't know what you have, of right. course, until it's gone. So uh, let's let's jump to. Chapter three, she talks about uh, the title is chapter is the right map. And then on the next page there towards the top, she says, you can actually follow the map. She says, you know, you need a roadmap to get where you're going. Um, So let's talk about this idea of roadmaps uh, in general, and then whether they're all worth following. What do we do with the maps that we have either created for ourselves or the maps that have been given to us? Because there will be a map, right? After, after high school, there'll be a map of our own creation or someone else has given us. And the question will be, is this map worth following? Sure. I think
2: um, certainly not all maps are worth following. And and I think by implication, not all destinations are worth traveling to. And um, I think that without going into uh, to into too into negative of a frame of mind, I think that many of our listeners are aware that there are problems with a progressive education model that we see. And that's part of the reason why they're here. Um, and so for people who are curious, um, we, uh, we have a different map to get to what we think is a different destination. And I think that there are some um, educators who would say we're all trying to accomplish the same goals we just do it differently than they do it. Um, but we would say that not only is our destination or not only is our map different, but our destination is really different. Yeah, you know, our our goal is not to create um, worker bees. And I know that mm-hmm. that's probably something that you're going to in a different episode. So we won't, won't harp on that much. But um, the question that is asked is such a common one is why do we have to do this? The, the implied understanding is always This does not, this is not going to have a future payoff. This is not going to net me some sort of monetary gain or it's going to net me some sort of non-monetary compensation of some kind that um, this is a, um, there's a lack of a practical usefulness that I can apply this to. And regardless of what kind of education you get, the majority, let's be honest, the majority of what you do is not going to be a part of your day-to-day life. Right. Unless you happen to become a classical educator, in which case your education will serve you very well in many, many ways. But um, that's not really our our goal. Our goal is not to create a person who can use all these um, these little things every single day of their life. There's lots of ways that we could educate you to do that. We could have you from the age of five start pulling levers on a factory floor. Mm-hmm. Um, one, of the, one of the books that we read with the seniors is Brave New World. And uh, that book talks about how, I mean, if you think about this to its logical extent, if really your goal is just to create people who have skills for work, why stop at school? Why not go further? Why not go back beyond school? Why not go back all the way to the point of genetically modifying people to um, be able to uh, work menial tasks and still be satisfied? And so they'll, they'll, um, affect the the a fetus to the point where it it has a lower i q or it's not as uh it, it's not going to be upset by having to sit and push a button all day um it doesn't want more than that and it, and it's a horrifying concept to think about but um that's kind of the that's kind of the end of that way of thinking of just like we're trying to make people who can work jobs, specific jobs. And that's not our, it's not our destination.
0: Right. We, we don't want to we don't you know, we are we live in the postmodern era. Right. But we don't want to adopt all of the postmodern ideology without giving it consideration. And one of those um, one of those uh, worldviews is that everything has a must have a practical use to to be worth keeping around. So even the question, you know, Nick, you said earlier that you were, you as a young man, I know I was as well in school. What is this? What good is this for? What use does this have? The question itself is flawed. I always love when my students ask me that because I'm like, great, we're going to have a a great exercise in logic and how to ask great questions. And then the kids are going to wish they never have asked it in the first place. (laughs) And uh, and so, the, the fact that we have trained students to ask those questions, not not here at the school, I hope we haven't here at the school, but at some point, somebody trained you to ask that question, right? Sure. You were taught that things are only, they only have value um, based on their practical use. And we, we reject that. We say um, most of, all of what we're doing has some practical use. It just might not be a direct practical use, right? Because the classical education is equipping students with tools of learning. So, yeah, I tell kids... Kids all the time, you're going to forget that you you forget everything about this book, but it will have formed you along the way. In the same way that when a potter creates a vase, those hands don't stay there, right? But that the forming has occurred, and and the vase can't be uh, unformed even when the hands are gone, right? So, um Mr. Duncan, do you have anything to say about? Yeah, about I would just say you maps? know, in,
1: in thinking about maps, you know, I I think that. There's a, there's a good analogy even with maps uh, to be drawn when thinking about uh, GPS. And I think that, that what modern, um, you know, progressive education has done, and, uh, you know, and I'm thinking about my education is um, plug in whatever destination you want. And here's like the quickest way to get there and follow this route and don't deviate from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- what, what classical education does, and I think, you know, one of the things that uh, Rebecca is arguing for here is that it, it gives the students the ability to actually read the map. Right. Or to even be getting on, you know, when, when the GPS says, get on, go go west on Main Street and you're, you know, you're pulling out and you're like, well, darn, I don't know, you know, look up and find the sun, right? And sure. Which way is east or west? Like right. To be able to think and not just have to be, uh, you know, robotic and, right. and to be able to get outside of, um, you know, yourself and, and to just know how to read a map, I think is... Um, you know, something that's that is what Rebecca's arguing for here. Right. And then you can go wherever you want. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And so I'm gonna use that to segue to um the next quote I want us to talk about on page 62. So part of our vision as a school is to to raise leaders, right? Servant leaders, but leaders nonetheless. And so she here in this chapter is talking about rhetoric, but really I want us to discuss um what it looks like to to raise and disciple and educate leaders. So she says at the top of the page here in bold. Rhetoric is the class that's trying to turn you into a leader, and then if you skip over sentence, she says maybe that seems dull and boring and stupid, but only to someone who isn't interested in leading and only wants to follow. So maybe just talk for a little bit about our vision um, and and forming you know leaders, and then also what do we say to those students who say you know we're not all made to be leaders. Some of us are made to be really good followers. So how do we or parents maybe who are thinking that about their kids who know their kids so well. So. Let's just talk about followership and leadership
1: yeah I think that um, we've allowed culture to peg us as you're either you know a leader or a follower or the other um, and I think that every person especially young young men and women or Christian men and women are all leaders in some capacity right That's we're right. all going to have influence over someone for the vast majority of people it's going to be probably just in your family right um, and and even for people that may not necessarily have a family you know maybe in a workplace Place. You may have, um, you know, leadership responsibilities um, over someone. And and maybe it's not even in a title, but you can just wield influence in someone's life um, that will be willing to listen to you and lead them, you know, to the gospel. Maybe right. able to, um, you know, lead them to Christ by, sh- by sharing the gospel with them. And so um, I think that's a kind of a false dichotomy that we've let culture draw on us. And, and you know, what she's talking about there is that, is that rhetoric is giving you the ability to persuade you know the most um, the most important thing is to and we and we you know we we'll, we will talk about truth goodness and beauty in an episode and we'll talk about you know, being persuasive and and adorning things. But, you know, this is giving people, rhetoric gives people the ability to adorn the gospel, gives Christians the ability to adorn the gospel. And so, um, even leading people in that way is still leadership. It doesn't have to be, you know, uh, a CEO of a business or a headmaster of a school or, um, you know, an upper school department head. It doesn't have to be um, you know, something like we have titles, but it doesn't have to be that, you know, we have people, we have teachers here in our school that don't have a title that are leaders, they are absolutely. school leaders, and parents are leaders, and we have students who are leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, those sorts of things should just be part of who Christian people are. Like we should just be leaders. And Paul says that. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, right? Kind of mm-hmm. kind of lays that out for us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think of, uh, of course, in my role, I'm a leader here at school. Um, I've, and to follow my husband, follow leadership in my church, follow Mr. Duncan and the leadership of our board here at school. So, in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm leading my own children. Um, and so, I'm, I'm leading and following. I think about, uh, I've heard recently a couple stories of two young women who in their workplaces had no titles of quote-unquote importance, but were working to change the culture of their workplaces um, to be healthier and more joyful and peaceful. And so, they were, they were leading, but of course, didn't have those official roles. And so, I, I just want to say we, we recognize that the Lord has built into some individual's qualities to make them natural leaders, but really what we're looking for in our school is that all of our students will be able to lead when the time is right, that they would be courageous and brave and have the skills that in whatever capacity that they could lead now and then follow later, and um, or lead and follow in a given day. And so I just want to encourage those who feel like they're maybe not natural leaders that we would say, that's okay, lean into the qualities the Lord has built you with. Um, but but the point is, will you be able to lead when you are asked to lead or when you See that need. So I'm gonna I'm gonna close up here um, with uh, one last quote on page 91, and she the author quotes Dorothy Sayers, who's written that uh, the speech that we like to refer to, the Lost Tools of Learning, and she says in 91 at the bottom. Um, Let's see. She talks about how Sayers helped the, you know, the, the new revival of the classical Christian movement. And she says, This is all somewhat humorous because in her essay, Dorothy Sayers remarks that it is in the highest degree improbable that these reforms I propose will ever be carried into effect. And she says, and yet here you are. And so I just love that because we're talking about a speech that was given in 1947. And and this, you know, Sayer says, I'm suggesting this return to this kind of education, but probably these things will never happen. This
1: will never happen.
0: And so how can we help our students understand that they're part of something bigger and also to be very progressive in the way that they see the future and be hopeful about that as well?
2: let's well, say one of the things and one of the reasons why we study history and look to history is because of the, the connection that it shows us with uh um with our past and we go beyond uh, we go beyond the progressive education model, which really didn't start until the progressive era in this country. It was in the 1910s when it started. And so that's a long time ago in, in, you know, just in lifetimes, generations, but it's really not in the grand scheme of history. And before that, for thousands of years, this was the model. And so it's really not that we're doing something new necessarily. It's just something that sort of got swept under the rug for a while. It's like right. uh, a treasure you find in granddad's attic or something mm-hmm. like that. And you get it out. Um, but uh, this thing is is uh, it's what made the greatest thinkers in the world, and we're not you know we're not necessarily aspiring to create the next John Milton or the next Thomas Jefferson or the next Plato or those kinds of people will come and, and uh, with natural giftings and they may come from Highland Rim even, but um, the classical model and and what uh, Mer- uh, what Merkel was talking about here in her book is just that um, you know in 1947. Um, It was, there wasn't a a public or private school movement much to speak of. And um, it wouldn't be until the 80s that classical schools started really getting launched. And so I'm sure she'd be happy with what she has seen in the classical schools, but really we're reaching back beyond that. And so that, to me, at least in the way I think of things, lends me uh, uh, optimism for the future as well. Is that this is something that's been old for a long time. So it's very, very old and it has survived the test of time. And I believe that it'll continue to survive the test of time.
0: Yeah. Um, I just want to close with – Encouraging my rhetoric students, I always tell them when they write their thesis and present it, it's their opportunity to actually call for something in the world. It's not just an assignment that I'm asking them to do. And so I want to ask them to consider, you know, all of our students as they get to that point, consider what is it that you'll be calling for and look toward the future in the same way that Sayers was and be hopeful about what you're you're hoping to see um, will come to pass and there'll be people much like you are fulfilling the vision of what Sayers had wanted to see, that there'll be people fulfilling what you would like to see changed in the world. So we're going to go ahead and close there. Excited about this book. Excited for our students to read it. Parents, this is a great book for you as well. Um, We're hoping to include this as part of our our regular curriculum in the future. And so um, pick this book up. Again, it's a great easy read for students and parents alike. Thank you for joining us today. And look forward to our next episode seven, uh, Why Latin?